grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In today's Gospel, Luke records and describes two very different processions. The first procession we could say represents the law because a woman is weeping. The wages of sin is death, that is, the law. A large crowd is with this woman. She has already buried her husband, and now death has knocked a second time in her family's door, and this time it was her son, her one and only son. It was considered in those days to be particularly bad if a woman is left alone without a husband and without any sons. In our day, it hardly seems fair when parents bury their children. When parents are forced to endure such affliction, they sometimes think, why couldn't it have been me? Why did the Lord take my child now? But we cannot trade places with our loved ones no matter how old the parent is or how young that child is. Even if we could trade places and the child could then live, that child would be left with many more years of toil and trouble and heartbreaking, as the hymn declares. That is life on this earth. The reason our world is filled with death and sorrow is because of the wages of sin, death. Death comes about because the world is filled with sin. If Adam and Eve would have listened to God and not listened to the lies of the tempter of Satan, and if no one would have eaten of that forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ever since, then all mankind would still be living in perfection in the Garden of Eden. Death would not be, capable, be possible. There would be also no pain. There would be no suffering of any kind. There would be no need for weeping and the shedding of tears of sadness. But we have all inherited the sin that was committed by Adam and Eve over 6,000 years ago. And on top of that original sin, which we have inherited, we are also guilty of committing many sins. We're all guilty of falling short of the glory of God. This guilt which we bear both from what we have inherited from our parents, ultimately to Adam and Eve, and from our own sin that we commit, and the things that we are supposed to do but fail to do, those sins of omission, all of this marks against us. And the wrath of God must then be carried out. We know that God is love. We love to talk about that God is love, as we should. But this other attribute of God's wrath must also be believed, taught, and confessed. The wrath of God is that God does hate sin and punishes justly those who are soiled in their sin. This wrath has to be carried out because God is just and justice must prevail. He cannot go against his own attribute of being just. 
and he is holy, he will not allow himself to be defiled by the sin of others. And so there is no letting off the hook. Punishment for sin must take place. God cannot pardon sinners without first receiving payment for sin. It is impossible. As parents, we sometimes look at our children and we brush off what they do and just let it be. As Christians, we just say, oh, let the things in the past be the past. Without really saying words of forgiveness, but without really holding things against people either. But for God, there must be a just punishment and a payment rendered for sin in order for him to acquit you. And that only punishment that is available is the shedding of innocent blood, which none of us have, and therefore someone else must satisfy God's justice. And so God sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus met justice's demands. Jesus shed his innocent blood, and this Jesus is the one who represents the gospel in this procession, this other procession. A crowd is following Jesus. So there was a crowd following this dead man and his mother leaving the city of Nain. So also there is a crowd following Jesus as he is approaching the city. These people are listening intently to his word. They are hearing him proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is hearing them proclaim how forgiveness of their sins is actually possible and how Christ takes away all of their sin. They are likely witnessing Jesus perform miracles. And now suddenly Jesus, as he heads up the second procession, does something that is unthinkable to the first procession. In fact, there's several things that Jesus seems to get wrong at first glance, but of course he is perfect and does nothing wrong. He has a reason. The will of God is always best. One thing Jesus does <clears throat> is he gets in the way of this funeral procession. He stops it. Let's consider funeral processions for a moment. When Queen Elizabeth died, her body was moved to different places in the United Kingdom. Roads were blocked. Nothing was allowed to get in the way of the procession of the queen. God himself is not a respecter of persons, so whether it is the queen of England or a lowly peasant, no one should get in the way of a funeral procession. So if you meet a funeral procession, give them room and have compassion. That is, if you are driving and you see a hearse with flashing lights, you see a string of cars behind that hearse with their headlights on and with flashing lights, what do you do? Do you continue on hurriedly because you have important matters to do? You just keep on doing what you plan to do as you meet them. Maybe they're coming one way and you're going the other way. What you are to do is to have respect for them, to pull over completely, to stop, and to wait. 
don't just pull aside and drive a little slower if it's a two-lane road. And whatever you are racing to will probably be of little consequence in 10 years from now or 20 or when you die. So show respect. Love those mourners whom you may have not met. Say a prayer for them as you are waiting for them to go by and as they are grieving. And then once that procession has finished, continue on your journey and you can go on your way. Because I ride in the hearse with the undertaker along with the body which we are about to lay in the grave, I often have a clear view of people's reactions when they are met by a funeral coach. Many are respectful. Many come to a stop. But some refuse to even slow down. What is the hurry? At least we have cell phones in our day to explain why we might be late for something. So let's not be caught by interrupting a funeral procession. It is rude. Jesus stops, though, this funeral procession. But he is not being rude, and he's not being disrespectful. In fact, he is filled with compassion, and he has an amazing plan that may be, that, 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 and he puts his compassion into action. And this gets to the next thing that might be considered to be unthinkable. Jesus says to the grieving woman, of course, he says it in all sincerity, as many people do when they say these words. He says to the grieving woman, do not weep. Now, words like this are usually not helpful when people are grieving. They're often said with the best of intentions, but many do not find them to be all that helpful. Of course, even less helpful would be, why aren't you over it yet? Or it's time to move on. Why should we tell someone not to weep? Well, weeping really is a God-given a God-given way to grieve. We have to recognize that the separation which is caused by death is absolutely painful. And there's no real good reason even for us to hide our grief. Sometimes after a loved one has died, we know that if we go to church, we're going to be a total wreck. That's how some have described themselves to me after they have suffered the death of a loved one. And so then they, they're tempted to stay home. They don't want to be caught found in the pews, shedding tears uncontrollably. But you know what? This is really the place to be. This is the place where we ought to be met with great compassion for we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We weep with you. We, gr we gr grieve with you. And when you come to the Lord's altar to receive the body and blood of Christ, there is no other place where you can be closer to your loved ones who have gone before you in heaven. When Jesus says, do not weep, he is not giving some sort of cold instruction by someone who doesn't understand the pain of death. But instead, Jesus says these words because he is the very resurrection and the life, which he will later proclaim as he is almost in Jerusalem to die to take away the sins of the world. He says those words right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Jesus is the resurrection life, as you can see in today's gospel as well, because he raises the woman's son from the dead. But before Jesus does so, he does something else that may from the surface be considered to be an unthinkable act. The people certainly would have been mortified by what they saw. What Jesus does is he touches the beer, B-I-E-R, which is like a stretcher for carrying a body to the cemetery. Our picture on the front of our bulletin, I think, depicts that pretty well. Many translations call it an open coffin, one that does not get buried when the person is brought out to the cemetery. In the Old Testament ceremonial law, it, they were forbidden from coming into contact with dead bodies. But Jesus is fulfilling the law, and we are no longer from, forbidden from touching the casket of our loved ones. In fact, it is okay even to touch the body of our loved one who has died. Because the people were still observing the Old Testament laws when Jesus performed this miracle, Jesus would have shocked the people. They would have stood there speechless, without saying a thing. They would have been so amazed that this had happened. And what is he doing? How can he behave in this way that they stood still saying nothing? But Jesus performs an amazing act by speaking a word. He breaks the silence. He announces, young men, man, I say to you, arise. And this young man who had truly been dead is no longer dead. He rises from the dead. He lives. He's no longer asleep in death, but he truly lives. Jesus performed a, glor a glorious miracle showing that he is the Lord of life, that Jesus is God himself. You might say, well, that's not really all that spectacular because we heard Elijah do the same thing in our Old Testament reading, did we not? But if you notice, there are some distinctions between what happens with this account with Elijah and this account with Jesus going into Nain. With Elijah, he prays. He prays and God answers the prayer. God is the one who raises this boy from the dead. With Jesus, of course, he could have prayed. But Jesus spoke the word. Jesus is the word made flesh. And the word does what the word says. And so Jesus raises this young man from the dead. He is the one who does the entire action. And with this young man suddenly sitting up, one whom they knew was truly dead, their, the crowd's tears turn to fear. The people stand in awe. They'd never seen anything like it before. They knew that this was different than what happened with the account with Elijah and the widow at Zarephath's son. And the woman rejoices because her only son is now living. They give glory to God. They praise him for his mighty deeds. And the people acknowledge that a great prophet has risen up among them. What they didn't quite get yet is that he is not just a great prophet, but that he is the prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophet was prophesied to come into the world, and here he is. When Adam and Eve sinned, bringing the entire world into sin, and with sin came death, God had promised that through the seed of the woman would come one 
who would destroy Satan. And here now he is, the one who can defeat death in the grave and Satan himself. Even though Jesus has power over death and raised the dead as he did here, Christ our Lord came into this world for a reason. He was born in Bethlehem. He walked the face of this earth. He was anointed as the anointed one in his baptism for a purpose, and that is to go to the cross to die. Divine justice was carried out on Christ. He died to atone for our sin. He died to pay the penalty that was due for us. He died to make a ransom. He died to fulfill God's demands for a blood payment. Because Jesus is God, his works are infinite. And so when he died, he did not just render a payment or satisfaction for the sins of one person, but he was able to render satisfaction, a payment for the sins of the entire world. And because Jesus is God, who fulfilled the law perfectly, he can then credit all who call upon the name of our Lord, all who abide in Christ with the very perfection of Christ. Scarcely would one die for a righteous person, but here Jesus dies for all those who are unrighteous, for the unworthy, for the rebellious, even for those who are filled with hate. That is, Christ died for you and for me. He died to redeem us from sin and declare a verdict that we are not guilty. And he declares you to be free of sin, righteous and holy, his beloved children. And so just as the two processions represent the law and the gospel, so also the law and the gospel meet at the cross of Christ. For divine justice is upheld. Jesus bore the sins of the entire world. He paid the penalty that was required of our sin. He suffered the very wrath of God so that we would not endure his wrath. But divine grace also is upheld because Jesus died making complete and perfect payment for our sin so that we are declared acceptable before God. Our sins are taken away. No doubt the disciples who had witnessed the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus would have gone home and broken silence. But now Jesus ends that silence saying it is as... as but. Uh, I got ahead of myself, I guess. Jesus, he broke that silence on the cross by saying, it is finished. And with these words, heaven is open, death loses its sting, Satan is defeated, our sins are atoned for, for that Lord of life had died. And now on the third day, that silence is broken when the women go out to the tomb of Jesus and found the stone blocking access to Jesus had been rolled away. A young man in a long robe said to these faithful women, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And these women heard amazing words. It was hard for them to comprehend and to grasp that what Jesus had said would happen has truly taken place. They saw his death. They saw how brutally they treated him. What they could not see is how Jesus suffered the wrath of God as he was forsaken by his Father in heaven. But Jesus had endured all that. And yet, those things could not keep our Lord in the grave. Jesus rose triumphantly. He rose from the dead, giving eternal life to all who believe in him. 
swallowing up death in victory, defeating Satan, and taking all our sin away. Such great news we have in knowing our Savior can heal the sick, he can raise the dead, he can atone for our sin, he himself can rise from the dead, and he will even raise us up on the last day. Such great news to know that God has paid for our sins. He made the ransom payment that was needed, that Jesus has declared you to be not guilty, and that he has gone to prepare a heavenly home for you. This is not a message for us to only consider and ponder or proclaim or speak about when we are here in church. We should do as the women did, to tell the disciples and to tell others to so that we should be proclaiming it, really, from the rooftops. Because this is such a high and great and wonderful news report. So let us support all faithful efforts to proclaim this word, especially the work of our own congregation. People cannot come to faith without hearing the word. And so let's speak it. For the word of God brings to us a forgiveness of sins, and with the forgiveness of sins comes re the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. At the last day, Christ our Lord will return. With the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet, all the dead will be raised, and all believers in Christ will receive the gift of eternal life. Our bodies will be raised physically. We confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, just as this young man was raised from the dead bodily, so also our bodies will be raised, and we will have incorruptible and immortal bodies, and we will live for all eternity in perfection with our Lord Jesus Christ and with all the saints who have gone before us and those who will follow after us. For as it is written in Psalm 23, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we give God thanks for his victory over death in the grave. And we confess with Paul in the words of our epistle, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.